Well, hello and welcome again to Coming Home Network Presents, where we have conversations about the kinds of questions that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic Church and wondering if they should become a part of it. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, and if you're dealing with any of the issues that we discuss uh, in this series, uh, perhaps you're dealing with the one that we're discussing today on Bible scholarship, uh, and you are looking for support from others who have dealt with that or who are dealing with it right now, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at the Coming Home Network. chnetwork.org is our main site with tons and tons of resources and stories and the like. Uh, and if you're looking to connect with others um, who are in this process right now, please consider checking out our online community, and that is community.chnetwork.org. I'm very excited today. I know I'm excited about all these, but this is going to be extremely nerdy and fun. This is in my particular area of interest, but it's not in my area of expertise, which is why I invited someone for whom it is. Uh, we get to talk Bible scholarship today, and uh, we get to talk to a guy who has done it in both Protestant and Catholic contexts. I want to look specifically about how one pastor and professor's exploration of this question played into his journey to... The Catholic Church. So today we get to talk to Vern Steiner. Uh, Dr. Vern Steiner is uh, a PhD in exegetical theology. Um, he was an evangelical pastor and seminary professor, and uh, he has the unique distinction of helping to found both a Protestant Bible Institute and a Catholic Bible Institute. <laughs> I don't know many people who've done that. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And he currently serves as president of the Emmaus Institute for Biblical Studies, and that's based in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Dr. Steiner, Great to talk to you again. Great, thank you, Matt. It's so good to be with you. This is this is fun, thrilling. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Um, and you have the unique distinction, you and your son Chad, of being what I think is the only father-son journey home episode that has ever taken place. Really, uh, where you guys got to be on together, and I very much encourage people to go check out um, that episode. We won't be able to get into all of that here, but I know that for you, this wasn't just an individual journey. This was a family thing for you, right? It really was, yeah. Our son Chad preceded us by four years. His journey was about a ten-year. Uh, both he and I studied our way in. I followed four years later, but uh, the whole journey extended over ten or twelve years. And uh, he and I recorded, I think, in the late summer of 2019 on your program. And uh, we still hear comments from people who who are finding their way there. Yeah, and you were just really getting things rolling with the Emmaus Institute um, as that happened. And I want to talk a lot more about you know how uh, the Emmaus Institute has kind of grown just in that intervening time. Um, but I want to start with you and Scripture because you know a lot of people you know think that you go to uh, study Scripture at the academic level and that's when you suck all the life out of your faith, <laughs> right? And that, yeah. uh, you know, it starts to become just an academic exercise. But I want to talk to you about, you know, what got you uh, to fall in love with Scripture in such a way that you wanted to devote yourself to an academic pursuit of its study? I trace the beginnings back to a God-implanted hunger that I had as a junior high kid and on into my high school years. And that led me then into into my college studies, where I majored in Bible history and philosophy. And, and where was that at? That was at Grace College in Omaha. It was a Bible college, uh, good school at the time, uh, gave me a good foundation. Uh, but I, I was invited by the school to have a traveling ministry, a lot of speaking, and I, I just found myself running dry and just sort of a, a hunger in my soul to study further. So. Uh, we moved off to Portland, Oregon, and I did two master's programs at Western Seminary. Uh, both of them focused in scripture study, the first one uh, in pastoral ministry and the second one in biblical literature, biblical theology. And from there, then I pastored a Protestant church. I was in one of these situations where I was absolutely spoiled. For a guy who likes to study, I was a young congregation, and they, they loved rich uh, you know, preaching. And so I studied 35 or 40 hours a week, and it was just wonderful. My, my uh, skills were developing, and uh, I was having the time of my life. But, but toward the latter uh, part of that uh, era, uh, I, I just had this stirring again to go back to school. I, I had some specific interests, and 
Those led me to Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, where I did the PhD program in exegetical theology. And uh, I, I think to answer your question, I was drawn into academic biblical studies by uh, an, in, an in, internal hunger, a desire, but also by professors who just impressed me with their lives, their prayer life, their their, their passion, their commitment to the gospel, and uh, their character, and their family life. I was just, just drawn to biblical studies professors. So that's uh, that, that's my academic path into uh, biblical scholarship. Uh, of course, I'm surrounded by many, many books. And so in addition to some wonderful professors, um, I've lived in this world now for, for many, many years. And uh, it's just been absolutely wonderful. I I love what I'm doing. I love the life God's called me to, and uh, actually feel I'm doing my best biblical studies and probably my best biblical teaching now in these years of my life. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's funny. Um, we can get into all kinds of aspects of this question. I went to Asbury College, and my major was in media communications, and I toyed with about three different minors that I never actually completed. Uh, one was in philosophy, one was in literature, and uh, then the other was in Bible, uh, but I never got a full Bible minor in part because I didn't want to have to learn Greek <laughs> or Hebrew. <laughs> um, so I took a few elective classes on the Psalms and, you know, sure, a few sure. other different kinds of things. And, and I, I absolutely loved it. Um, mm. I could never learn the Greek and the Hebrew. I always like to joke that my Koine Greek is more like Kanye Greek. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's there's this, you know, kind of desire in a lot of Christians, and and I wonder where you fall down on this question, because uh, some Christian traditions uh, put forth the idea of the perspicacious nature of, of Scripture, that any believer can pick up the Bible um, yeah. and know what it means. And then when people disagree over what it means, they say, well, you just have to study the text, right? And then people go and they learn the Greek you know, meaning of a word and, you know, the various ways that it's used throughout. And I mean, did you think that there was a way to understand scripture when you were coming from, a, what was it? Was it an evangelical free church background? Um, well, well, my background is quite mixed, but I, I ended up going to an evangelical free seminary in Chicago. Uh, but I had some Mennonite background, some Baptist background and mixture of things. Um yeah, the whole perspicuity question is one that uh, I, I find interesting, and uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't actually given a method. In fact, I asked one of my doctoral professors one time how, how he goes about. Uh, he actually wasn't one of my professors. He was on the faculty of the school I attended, and uh, I was an assistant under him. And I asked him one time, "So, how do you go about exegeting scripture?" He looked at me as though I'd asked a rather weird question. He sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I, I don't know. I just do it. <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, okay. Uh, there, but there has to be some kind of procedure that we, we can teach. And my background was strongly literary, uh, you know, looking at text and, and how, how texts say what they say and why they say what they say. And uh, that led me into uh, all sorts of uh, paths of genre, of course, and the different kinds of material we have in Scripture, a heavy emphasis on, on context, a heavy emphasis on grammar and syntax and all of those good things that uh, uh, I, I find quite thrilling uh, myself. Um, so Hebrew and Greek, of course, became my life and Aramaic as well. Um, but as for per perspicuity, the, the uh, uh, clarity of scripture and then anybody can just pick it up. Um, I, I don't think God has always put the cookies on the lowest shelf. And, and I really think scripture is designed the way it is often to stretch us. And uh, I, I have become less a lone ranger. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I no longer think that biblical studies are best done in the privacy of one's, of one's study. I think that's, that's a wonderful place to be, but we need, uh, we need a community, uh, and we need uh, a, a connectedness with history. And, um, and we need to determine that we're not coming up with interpretations that, for which there's no precedent. And uh, 
So well, I, I, can I stop you right there? Yeah, sure, because 90% of the Bible scholars, the Protestant Bible scholars I know would follow you that far. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. and say, you know, we, we gotta, we can't just be Lone Rangers. We got to study this and, you know, community, we got to understand this as, you know, this gift that God's given to the church, even if they don't mean all the same thing by what a church or what the church is. Um, but you took it to an extra level, right? Because you added something in there that's not added in the rest of that Protestant description, yeah. which is a magisterium. I mean, yeah. that's got to have affected a whole bunch of how you look at this question. Oh, it did, yeah. I, I spent years working on a procedure. I prefer that word over methodology. And, and I spent years developing this, including criteria. How do we then determine that one interpretation is preferable to another? And uh, being somewhat fond of alliteration, I landed on canon. So an interpretation must be consistent with the rest of the canon of Scripture. Creed, interpretation must be consistent with the church's uh, early formulation of the faith, leaning especially on the apostles and Nicene creeds. And then I added a third word. I call it community. This is why I was still a Protestant. I couldn't quite get myself to say church because that, that would <laughs> that, that would invite then a discussion on what church, which church, you know. So I said community. And my point was that uh as I mentioned a moment ago, interpretation is best done in a, in a community. It, it's not just the Holy Spirit guides me in my understanding, but if the Holy Spirit's guiding me, then the same Holy Spirit must be guiding others. And, and then later I added Christ, so that all interpretations ultimately exalt Christ. And it took me years to develop this in several manuals. I, I didn't publish them, but we used them in-house. And then in about 2011 and 12, when I started studying my way through the catechism, I came to sections 112 and following, and I discovered all four of those C's there. So had I read the catechism. Well, one, you, you discovered three of those four, because the third one in there was actually church and not exactly. just community, right? Exactly. It's more defined there. But, but here I spent years reinventing the wheel, you know. Gosh, I, I wish, see, this would be a whole other episode of Coming Home Network Presents. Sure. It's like, just get a panel of people who had gone through and researched everything they could and created what they thought was this finally brilliant way to systematize yeah. and synthesize yeah. all these Christian problems into like one cohesive thing, only to discover that the church had done it like hundreds and hundreds of years before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's happened. Had it so many times. It's happened to me over and over. Yeah. And, and part of my awakening was uh, I'm a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and uh, another society or a couple other societies and uh, attending those conferences, which I haven't done, done now in a few years. But uh, over the years, you know, you, you go into one lecture and you hear this presentation on a particular passage and then you go down the hall to another session and hear that <laughs> interpretation and, and they're, they're incompatible. And, and you start asking you know, is there a criterion here that's not being included? And uh, can, can we get our hands around that? And for me, that led into a closer look at how the church from its earliest years handled scripture. And though I don't consider my, myself an expert, it was always a weak part of my formal studies uh, in church history and the fathers. It's an area that I've been trying my best to grow in. And uh, and just, uh, you know, measure conclusions to which I come against those who preceded. And it, it troubles me greatly when I uh, read a commentator, uh, I'll not mention a name here, but I'm thinking of one in particular who, who comments on one of the passages in the pastoral letters, First Timothy in particular, and he just confidently says, well, Ignatius got it wrong. And, and I'm thinking, okay, now, now, we're supposed to trust you 20 centuries later, <laughs> 20 centuries removed, and, and, and through your wonderful exegetical uh, work, you can confidently, confidently conclude that Ignatius was all wrong on this. That there, there's something missing there. And so that was part of my journey, just wrestling through those issues. You know, what's, what's fascinating to me is when you cut out those first generations um, of biblical commentary and you cut out i mean we we would reference people like origin uh, of alexandria and some others along the way you know sure. who were commenting um on the scriptures but there's certain things that because we were 
in, in the world that I ran into, even as just a, I'd say a, just a hack, right? I didn't even have a full Bible minor. <laughs> um, uh, there's certain things that you just don't know if you're not in the family. If you're reading the story from outside the context of the family that has curated and cared for and guarded the story, there's certain things you can't know. This this hit home for me the other day. I was going on a fishing trip in Tennessee and driving back with my dad um, back towards Kentucky at the time. And uh, we, I don't know, it was like three, four in the afternoon and there were a few McDonald's along the exits and it's the part of Kentucky where there's not a lot of stuff. Well, there are many parts of Kentucky like this. It's like Nebraska. Yeah. Um, but my dad said something to the effect of, uh, you want to stop here? Or you just want to wait till we get home and get a bologna sandwich. Now, I know full well there's no bologna in my father's fridge. Uh-huh. And I know full well that if we go all the way back to my parents' house, we're probably not even going to have sandwiches at all. It's just his way of saying, and it has always been his way of saying, we'll just get something at the house. Sure. Um We'll have a bologna sandwich is his way of saying, we're not going to stop anywhere. We're just going to finish this trip. And there are all kinds of things like that in the scriptures that are scriptural idioms um, that if you're not part of like the family, you don't understand like the family language, you just can't, like it just doesn't make sense. I mean, like for you guys are named after the walk to Emmaus, right? (laughs) You know, and there's pieces of that story that if you're in the context of the church, you see that you don't see if you're not kind of in the family of the church. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, a a large part of my study and my doctoral work was in what we call intertextuality. And uh, so interbiblical exegesis, how do passages reflect interpretively on each other, Old Testament, New Testament, for example, or even passages within the Old Testament. And so there you can pick up a lot of that family language, just, you know, how does one passage, how do the prophets reflect interpretively on the Torah, you know, on, on the Pentateuch? But, but it doesn't stop there, and, and God's people have continued to ruminate and, and live in the scriptures. And this is why uh, just lexical approaches to word studies are so limited, uh, because uh, there's just a, a way of handling scripture. I mean, Arius was, was quite, a, quite a, an accomplished exegete uh, in a kind of strictly literal way of handling scripture, but, but he came up with some wrong conclusions. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, can be understood the way Arius would have understood it, or Proverbs 8, or Colossians 1, and other passages. But they weren't the right way to understand it, because they weren't the understanding that had become part of the Christian vocabulary, part of the Christian way of understanding things uh, taught by Christ and passed on to his followers. And so that's that led, of course, to Nicaea. And, and it, it's not that that Athanasius and company were biblical scholars and Arius wasn't. It's, it's that there must be criteria brought to this task that a strictly uh, literal handling of the text uh, isn't capable of handling. And, and that's all part of that Christian understanding, that Christian vocabulary, that context in the church, those entrusted with the scriptures that you're getting at. And it, it's it's a necessary part of handling scripture the way Jesus wants us to. Well, I know you've got a ton of respect for the people who formed you in oh, uh, the ancient languages, and um, you've spoken uh, very uh, warmly about you know the legacy that was handed on to you, not just by people for their intellectual brilliance, but for the you know the lives of prayer from which this kind of study emanated. Um, exactly. The people who formed you, um, even yeah. in your evangelical days. Um, yeah. But looking back, when you see those debates among evangelicals where someone's saying, well, the Greek says this, and the person says, well, you know, but in the context it says this, you know, now that you can sort of see it from inside, from the life of the church, um, I mean, how do you view those conversations now? Because, you know, frankly, there are probably some people watching right now who are, you know, pastors who have had to go pick up their interlinear (laughs) New Testament, you know, to go out and preach and trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean and how do I say it? How can I make sure I'm saying it right? I mean, how do you look at what that struggle was like for you when you were in kind of that world, now that you're on the other side of it? Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I have high, high respect for those whom God used to shape me. And the way I often tell people when I get into these conversations, I, I tell them that I'm actually just carrying forward 
the basic uh, procedures and methodologies that I was taught. I, I think I'm just carrying them to another level or I'm carrying them out to, to their uh, ultimate conclusion. And um, so I, I appreciate where people are. I, I think God has given me a heart of humility and charity and respect. I uh, have great admiration for, for my teachers and many of the books in my library. But uh, over a 10 or 12 year period, I had to wrestle through uh, a, a lot of things. I, I have this talk I enjoy giving, how the Bible made me do it, how scripture study made me Catholic. And really, it's the story of how the basic procedures that I had been taught and that I had honed uh, as a teacher myself and put into four manuals and, and some articles and, and class handouts and such, uh, how that procedure led me to to where I am today. And I, I actually feel that I'm a more careful exegete. I'm, I'm deeper in my devotion to Scripture than I ever was. I, I feel I'm more faithful, not, not less so. And, um, you know, the irony, Matt, is that a lot of my uh, Protestant, uh, evangelical Protestant friends and uh, some of the churches where I used to speak and hold events and schools where I taught as an adjunct, for example, a lot of them uh, you know, must see it differently. At least I've not been invited back. And, and I find that interesting. I feel, and I say it in all humility, but I, I feel I'm doing the best study, the best um, teaching in my life. And, and yet those doors seem to have closed. So I, I often tell people that, what I discovered in my journey uh, is that the Catholic faith is biblically sounder, and I could give specific examples of that. It's theologically richer, it's historically deeper, and it's experientially fuller. And when I get to the biblically sounder part, I, I have examples that I can draw on. I was lying awake one night. Uh, sleepless, and I uh, began listing the passages. This is about three months or so after we entered the church in 2015. I was 65 years old at the time. I'd been teaching for 40 years. But I began listing the passages that I honestly felt as a Catholic now, my world of understanding had opened up and that I could do a better job teaching now than I did uh, earlier, given my new context. And uh, I fell back asleep somewhere between 60 and 70 passages that I was able to list that I, I felt with, with all humble confidence I could do a better job, you know, from the Passover of Exodus 12 to Chronicles, which a lot of people probably aren't even aware it's in the Bible. I did my doctoral dissertation in Chronicles, and I that night as I lay awake, I was rethinking some of the passages that now I, I think I understand better, and I could give reasons for that up to Matthew 16 and the founding of the church and Peter and what that entails and Luke 1 and Mary and all the Old Testament background that comes pouring onto that rich gospel passage, John 20 and the whose sins you forgive uh, passage and First uh, Timothy 3.15, you know, the church is the pillar and foundation. Uh, I mean, I just go on and on and on that my world has, has opened up. I understand these passages. And, and, and while I always considered myself a literary scholar, very attentive to the details of the text, I actually believe that with a Catholic perspective, reading through the lens of the church, we actually let some of these passages speak more, more literally than we did as Protestants. So, I would uh, absolutely say that's the case. I mean, there's yeah. that's, that's the case in a whole bunch of different ways. It like, is. It uh, is. When, when it says that, uh, you know, Jesus says to the apostles, you know, receive the Holy Spirit, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. We never took that as literally as the Catholic no, Church takes no, that. Um, no. You know, or confess John your sins six. one to another. Um, <laughs> you know, the stuff on fasting, we never took that as literally as the Catholic yeah, Church yeah, takes it. Yeah. Um, there's tons and tons of examples of that. There, yeah, really, really. I mean, John 6, of course, is a great example, and, you know, the whole bread of life discourse. And I remember in a classroom teaching the students that this is an exegetical test case. This passage will test every every bit, uh, every tool in your exegetical toolbox. And I could not come up with a conclusion as a Protestant that let the text say everything it wants to say. 
And uh, but now I can. And so so in a certain way, back to the question, in a certain way, you know, the church gives us some boundaries with, within which to operate. But I actually experience more freedom now. And I, and I know yeah, there that, are shockingly few boundaries. Yeah, exactly. um, that's that's one of the things that, that struck me about the way that the church kind of allows freedom in in the way that it uses the, it uses scripture in a lot wider variety of ways. It yes. uses it in the in the liturgy. Uh, in ways that were completely unexpected to me, by the way, um, mm-hmm. there are pieces from the scripture that that you know the, the first time it starts to click with you. So the first time I went to mass, I didn't get it right. I didn't get like it's saturated in scripture. I was there for the preaching, just like I had been in every church that I ever yeah. went to my whole life. And I thought this is the least biblical preaching I've ever heard in my existence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when I started to kind of go back and pay attention, I'm like, wait, I know where this part's from. I know where that part's from. I know, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Or at that point, it was, it was, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, right? I know um, uh, these stories are popping into my mind, you know. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, these are these are all these things that are jumping out for me, that, that the Bible is being used in ways that I would have never kind of thought to use the Bible. Or even with—so this is a this is an interesting and sort of like a nerdy example, but I remember reading from Luke's Gospel— Oh, uh, when I was like in my early teens, probably junior high, um, and I had it actually this Bible right here. It's underlined in here, uh, Luke one. I remember um, when Simeon hears uh, he he meets Christ yes. um, and the Holy Family, and he says, "Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. From my eyes, I've seen your salvation." I always thought these would be awesome last words. Like I want to memorize this because I want to you know have them ready to go if I think yeah. I'm going to die. Right. And then I come into the Catholic Church and I start to discover the tradition of the liturgy of the hours and specifically night prayer. And what is night prayer about? Well, it's this much about sleep and this much about death. Right. Yes. yes. And uh-huh. what is what do you pray as part of night prayer? Even night you pray the canticle of Simeon. Yes. It's yeah. essentially like the ultimate if I should die before I wake. Yes. You know, kind of passage. I would have never thought to like use that in the way that the church has been using it. For centuries, I mean, centuries yeah. and centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this isn't like a fad that was big in the 80s and the church decided to keep it, and now we're in the 2020s. This is like centuries and centuries of the church using scripture this way. It's it's yeah. unfathomable. Yeah, yeah. The connections are are just so rich and wonderful. Uh, things that we never saw before, and uh, and now we see them because, as you mentioned, they become part of the liturgy. And I just think it's ingenious on the part of the church to have an Old Testament reading, a responsorial psalm, a New Testament reading other than the Gospels, and then a Gospel reading. And we're teaching our students here at Emmaus. In fact, we have a whole course going right now on seeing and just learning to to connect those passages and, and the wisdom of the church in giving us the, uh, the lecture. Oh, passages I would have never connected in a million years before, yeah. by the way, some of them. Yeah, and, and to see why that responsorial psalm is more than just the the lector and, and the congregation responding to each other or the choir and the congregation. It's a responsorial psalm in that it connects, you know, the Old Testament and the New. It's responding to the Old and connecting to the New as a bridge. And to see that, all kinds of wonderful lights come on. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Well, you know, you coming at this from a, from an academic standpoint, from someone who, um, who is both an academic and a pastor, which is not always a combination that you see, you know, out there and well, in, in a whole bunch of different places, uh, a lot of people are one or the other, right? They go and they get their seminary sure. formation, then they sure. go into pastoral work. Uh, some people, you know, go into seminary, you know, lecturing and teaching and study and don't, you know, go back to the pulpit or they do on, you know, Sunday, some Sunday night when the regular pastor is out of town, right? Um, so, seeing you know, kind of the importance of the study of the Word of God, but also the lived reality of this, you know, active um, and living Word uh, of God. When with that already in your mind, um, when you read something like the Church's document from the Second Vatican Council, Dave Verbum on the Word of God, and, and other things that where the Catholic Church talks about what she believes the Bible to be. Um, were you surprised at all to hear the way that the Catholic Church talked about the Scriptures? Oh, I've fallen in love with Dave Verbum and have read it over and over. It's it's become one of my favorites. Um, 
by this time I had I had asked the question just what what is the Bible you know I mean what what defines it as Bible and and had been teaching for years uh, three a three part response to that the Bible is written text so it's it's pages with words written on them which someone wrote. The Bible is divine revelation. It's, it's, these are inspired words through which God wants to talk to us. And the Bible is a sacred canon. You know, these aren't 66 Protestants or 73 Catholic uh, books out there floating around independently. They, they are an ordered collection, which the church recognizes as holy and authoritative. And reading De Verboom, uh, I mean, that's just right, right down the the pike there of what's what's being uh, expressed it, it's a written text um, these are words uh, they call for humble uh, diligent study uh, these are inspired words this is divine revelation through which God speaks uh, this is a sacred canon they're collected so they're, you know I didn't have to change anything in my fundamental understanding of scripture what I had to do is tweak some of these a little bit um, so, for example, uh, the uh, divine revelation, yeah, no, nowhere does, does the Bible claim to be, you know, to exhaust divine revelation. No, nowhere does the Bible claim that it's the, the sole revelation of God. In fact, there are many, many passages, famously 2 Thessalonians 2, but I have pages of passages and comments on them that in one way or another, the Bible is saying that there's, uh, the, the expression "word of God" is not limited to what's written, and so the, yeah, the, I believe uh, I can't remember if it's Dave Verbum or, or maybe in the Catechism where it says that Christians are not a people of the book; they're a people of the word, and yeah. that's a huge distinction. It right? is, it is, yeah. And there's a lived memory. So my wife and I have been married for 50, almost fifty-one years, and while it's not a perfect analogy. Uh, I, I think it, it gets to the point. There's an awfully lot about our 51 years together I could write in, in a book, but there's an awfully lot I couldn't write. It just cannot be put into writing. It's a lived experience. It's a preserved memory. It's just as true as what I would write in a book, and the two can't contradict, of course. And in some ways, that's how the church views tradition with an uppercase T. You know, these aren't two sources of revelation. There's only one source. God is the source. But it comes to us by way of two, two streams, we might say. And, and these will always uh, uh, agree with each other. So I've had to expand my understanding of what revelation is. And Dave Verboom was my first step, really, toward doing that. And uh, in terms of the canon, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but it was my wonderful privilege of studying under a world-class canon scholar. And I had studied uh, issues of the canon for 30, 40 years, and I had written about it. And so when, when I was first confronted with this notion that maybe my canon of scripture wasn't complete, that there were a few books not there, it was almost a deal breaker for me. I I had to struggle with that over that issue for years and years, and until it finally occurred to me that that it's not really a New Testament issue. Of course, we pretty much all agree on the New Testament, but but seven books that the Catholics claim that are not in most Protestant Old Testaments, and I, I, I it finally occurred to me, you know, all my research in the canon has been done in Jewish scholarship and in Protestant scholarship, post-Reformation scholarship. I'd never really taken the time, I'm embarrassed to admit, but I'd never taken the time to explore this question from the fathers on. And, uh, and then it occurred to me, you know, that the contents of the Old Testament really weren't definitively uh, decided until uh, sometime after Christ, you know, second, third century or so. And, uh, and if we can't trust the Jews on identifying the Messiah properly, how can we trust the, the Pharisees for giving us the canon properly? You know, what obligation do we have as the church to trust the Jewish community to have gotten it right on the canon. And that whole question sent me on a journey that took uh, a number of years until I was able to uh, to get that resolved. And uh, so, uh, you know, in some ways, not a whole lot has changed in my understanding of scripture. It's just deepened and expanded a bit. 
and um, and and then appreciating the role of tradition in the sense of lived memory and lived experience and preserved memory. Uh, that that's been a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, step forward for me in my biblical studies. You know, there's so many. Gosh, I have like 500 questions for you, but uh, I, know, I know we're trying to like limit the time here. But, you know, you mentioned that uh, where we get into kind of the disputes between Protestant and Catholic canon questions, it's with the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It's with the Hebrew scriptures. It's because of things like the Septuagint or what we do and don't have in the original um, manuscripts and, and, and that sort of thing. But there is no dispute about the New Testament canon. No. And why is there no dispute about the New Testament canon? Well, it's because of the Catholic Church, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, you know, and that's not something that I ever considered, that I was putting my trust in the Catholic Church's uh, yeah. guidance under the Holy Spirit, that yeah. this would be the canon. But also the thing that I didn't understand was, you know, how these books would have been assembled over time in that those first decades following the ascension of Jesus, right? And, and understanding... I mean, in your mind, you're like, well, this was likely written between this and this, you know, period of time AD, and, you know, it was written to this audience and that sort of thing. But I don't think it ever struck me until I became Catholic that very much of, at least in the epistles, what we don't have is the substance of Christianity in the epistles. We have some very strong comments about, you know, the faith and, you know, how we're supposed to live it and how it can go far afield, but but the substance of Christianity is kind of, you know, we sort of see it by where it's gone off the rails, by Paul correcting things that have happened around it, um, you know, or Peter, you know, admonishing people in the way that they go about it. We don't get the manual of how, like, a worship service is supposed to go in the scriptures. I mean, we get a little bit of that from Paul in Second Corinthians, but we don't get, what we get is the church using the written word to kind of explain how to, how to approach what they're already doing, which is you know, living this kind of life in community with sacraments. And it's it's a it's a strange thing when you start to realize how the word of God, how the how the what we now know as the New Testament would have functioned in the life of the church. It wouldn't have functioned the same way that we used it in the Protestant congregations that I grew up in. Sure. Um, yeah, and why these books and not others were selected and included in the canon surely had something to do with their consistency with the Old Testament, surely had something to do with the witness they bore to Christ, but surely also had something to do with the usage that the early church had already been making of these and not some others. And uh, that had to factor, I think, in a very large way into why these books and not the others uh, were ultimately included. Yeah, any other stuff, uh, you know, now that you are catholic and have been for some time uh you know and are still doing exegetical work right i mean right right you uh you can't you know it's like the how do you get an elephant out of the theater you can't it's in its blood right <laughs> you know it's the same sort of thing with like i guess as someone who's grown up with like exegesis it's it's in your blood i mean you can't stop doing it i wonder what some of the other things you've kind of discovered uh have been um in your years doing this uh with i guess catholic glasses as it were Sure. Well, I, one of the things, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton has this wonderful definition of bigotry that uh, struck me. I think it's in his book on uh, Catholicism and conversion, or I might have the terms turned around there. But um, bigotry is uh, it's not bigotry to be certain that we are right, but it is bigotry to be unable to imagine that we might possibly have gone wrong. That, that's pretty close to his definition. And I over a number of years, I had to uh, be open to the possibility. I, I taught my students that there's a moral obligation to go wherever truth leads you. You must follow the truth. And, and I had to be open to the possibility that maybe I, my, I myself have been wrong on some things. So, for example, uh, how many years did I take Second Timothy 3, the famous passage about all scriptures inspired and is profitable uh, for correction, teaching, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be uh, equipped, you know, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I, I drew from that that the scriptures are complete. These are the 
This is the extent of God's revelation. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 don't actually say that. Um, and, and other passages too. 1 John 1, 9, famous passage on confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I always understood that as a Protestant to be a private kind of confession. Just, you know, I, I confess it to God. And, and while that, Not if you read it in connection with, connection with what James says, <laughs> right? Or in connection with what John, yeah. same author, says at the end of the Gospel of John, which you were citing earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Moreover, you just look up the word confess, just do a basic Greek word study on the word homologeo, and you'll discover that many times it's not, or at least not likely in context, a private matter. But we had assumed it was. And... So I, I, I've had to go, I mean, this would go on and on, uh, all kinds of examples where I've just had to rethink. Um, in our previous correspondence, we talked a bit about exegesis and eisegesis. And, mm-hmm. and you know, in exegesis, we're seeking to lead out of the biblical text. We're letting God say what God wants to say. In eisegesis, the, the, you know, we're imposing upon the text our own presuppositions, and none of us can escape presuppositions, and, and there's no need for us. We need to be honest and humble enough to admit them. And, and I had to be honest and humble enough to admit some of my own presuppositions that perhaps I was imposing some views from wherever onto the biblical text, not letting it say what it truly wanted to say. And so... That, to me, has been one of the greatest joys of, of life and these um, these years of, you know, I'm 72 now, and, and just to be able to read Scripture again and, and seeing it open up in ways that I had not seen before or permitted, per, perhaps permitted it to say before, um, uh, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. It continues to be that. Well... You know, you're in good company here because, as you well know, the Coming Home Network is this vibrant worldwide community of people who are all gathered around um, the common experience of having been wrong about the most important questions in the cosmos, <laughs> right? I mean, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is what binds us together, right, is that right, exactly. we we thought one thing or we thought part of one thing, and, and there's, a, there's yeah. a fullness to it. I wonder, um, you know, let's say that there's someone listening right now. Uh, who um, is either you know somewhat open to the Catholic faith, or or, or or maybe quite a lot open to the Catholic faith, but they're they're stuck on this question, and they're they're worried that by becoming Catholic, they're making the Bible um, smaller than than it ought to be in this picture. Um, how would you explain your experience of of what I know has been my experience too? How can you? Is there any way that you can convey maybe that feeling of, of what it's like to have this book that was everything to you, that was the most important thing um, that had ever been written, God's word to us, that it is now infinitely more important than we even thought it was? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, can, can you convey that at all to somebody who might be kind of like struggling with this aspect of the question? Sure. Back when Emmaus started, so just uh, to, to interject briefly, the Emmaus Institute for Biblical Studies is a apostolate here in the Diocese of Lincoln, initiated by our bishop, Bishop Conley, who invited me to begin praying about founding this. Uh, and that uh, initial conversation happened about two months after my wife and I were confirmed Easter Vigil 2015. So I had given up uh, a a career. I I had been teaching for 40, 45 years uh, in one capacity or another. And um, I I should just interject as well. So I'm not well published. I'm not known around the world. I just poured my life into teaching and, and into mentoring students. And but anyway, I had this career, and God asked me to give that up. It's as clear as can be to me that my path into the church was a surrender. It was a happy surrender, not a begrudged one. But uh, I gave up a lifetime of, of, of doing this. And then here's my bishop calling me two months later saying, um, I wonder if you'd begin praying about the possibility of starting an institute in biblical studies. And I was just profoundly, just just deeply, deeply moved by that. And uh 
So four years later, we started. And uh, as we started the Institute, I wrote a couple of articles. They're available on our website, uh, www.emmausinstitute.net, in which I addressed the question of, can Catholics be Bible Christians? That was my title. Can Catholics be Bible Christians? And uh, two parts, uh, some of the myths that I think some of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters um, uh, seem to believe about Catholics, but then also some myths that some Catholics believe uh, about the role of Scripture. And, and I address those, and I don't have time now to develop all of that. But what I've found is kind of a mixture. I, I have many Catholic brothers and sisters who are as devoted to Scripture as I am. Maybe they aren't all academically in the same place, but they absolutely love Scripture. Read it, pray it, live it, listen to it. They enroll in our classes and in other good places around the country. Uh, just love Scripture. And then others who, by their own admission, say, you know, I just don't know much about the Bible, and uh, I'd love to have an opportunity, but just haven't, or I've struggled with the church's teachings about Scripture and not quite sure, you know, what to do with all of that. Catholics are all across the, all across the board here. And uh, what we've done here at Emmaus is we offer an on-ramp for people. We call it the whole-in-one, W-H-O-L-E, the whole Bible in one year. It's just kind of an on-ramp for people to, to, to become more familiar with the Bible. And almost without exception, these, these dear Catholic people who haven't had this opportunity before just, just are in awe at, <laughs> at the scriptures they have loved. They have, you know, participated in the sacraments faithfully. They, uh, they hear the scriptures, but they just haven't quite known how to put it all together. And then when they see it all put together and a kind of a thematic cohesiveness of the whole Bible. It's just like the whole world opens up for them. But, uh, but as you consider, any of our viewers consider the things we've discussed today, I just want to say you'll find Catholics all across the board. Some of the people who are most deeply in love with Scripture and well-studied in the scripture uh, are some of my brothers and sisters in Christ in the Catholic context, and uh, and then others uh, not so much. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. But um, but I tell you, for, for me, this is a wonderful home, a wonderful home to be in. And, and I honestly feel more at liberty to do what I'm called and gifted to do now as a Catholic than I think I ever did as a Protestant. We, we don't have... In the Protestant world, anybody we identify as a pope, but but we have our authority figures, and for some of us, depending on which schools we were teaching in or which congregations we were pastoring, you know there are restraints put on us by denominational statements or by uh, by school uh, requirements or whatever, and 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 those become the boundaries within which we 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 have to operate uh, in the Catholic Church, as Matt said earlier. There are precious few boundaries that are really binding on how we handle Scripture. There, there is a, what I call, there, there's the, there are the bricks around the fire in the fireplace, and thank God for the bricks, um, but, but they're generously placed. And we can handle Genesis 1, the creation account, in different ways as Catholics. We can handle so many passages, but uh, th there's liberty, but, but there's a safe place also. And we be sure that we're always interpreting from the heart of the church through the lens of the church. And this isn't just the church today, it's the church for 2,000 years. And uh, in the confidence that we're consistent with well, how Jesus taught his, his followers and how they've passed that on to their followers. And, and here we are uh, in this family um, uh, studying scripture, learning and growing and loving our Lord in the process. Great, great place to be. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you're reading the Bible as a Catholic, I like to say it's a lot less like cracking a code and it's yeah. more like carrying a trust. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much that way. Yeah. Well, it's less, it's less proof texty. You know, you're, I was just having a conversation with someone, and this is a bit of a caricature, I will admit that, but, but many Protestants go to a Bible study or a class to solidify what they already believe. They just want to go deeper and firmer in their convictions that they're right. 
I find that less to be the case in the Catholic context where people come to the scriptures to hear, to hear what God wants to say, to listen, to learn, and, and to get to know God, and to let that enter into their prayer life so that you have this wonderful dialogue with the Lord. We're, we're less proof texty, it seems to me. Now, again, uh, I'm broad stroking here. And, and yeah, you'll find some proof texty Catholics, yeah. but you'll also find a daily mass where you'll hear uh, somebody get up and proclaim the gospel and sit down. I remember the first time I went to a daily mass and uh, the priest got up there and uh, read the gospel and said the word of the Lord, you know, <laughs> the gospel of the Lord. Yeah. And we all sat back down and then he went on. I'm like, I've never in my life heard of the possibility of somebody just throwing the word of God out there, letting everybody sit in silence with it for a minute or two and then move on. Right. Let yeah. the word of God just speak for us. It's, yeah. it's wild. You know, well, there's is. so many ways. And I mean, that's again, just a man. I have a thousand more questions for you. We're going to have to have another one of these. Yeah. Sure, uh, but in the meantime, uh, remind our listeners where they can get in touch with the Emmaus Institute, because you have so many good things going on um, and just really exciting and a lot of, to be honest, fun things. Uh, going on with the Emmaus Institute. Yes, we do. And we're still in our infancy. We're just finishing our third year. But we can be found at www.emmausinstitute.net. Our website is developing. We, we plan this summer to get a lot more things up there. But all of our courses and seminars, and uh, there's a blog um, listing there and some articles and uh, like i said we're developing it and but we're having a wonderful time uh god's blessing in in some phenomenal ways and uh it just it just a a great a great time to be uh, studying and teaching and learning and living the scriptures great time to do so as catholics awesome stuff well Vern, i encourage people to go check out your episode along with your son chad of yes. the journey home it's linked at chnetwork.org again while you're there um you, you can go up to the connect button and click over to our coming home network online community that's community.chnetwork.org as well and uh, we are completely viewer and donor supported so uh, feel free to hit that donate button while you're there so we can continue to connect you with awesome stories and resources like the emmaus institute for biblical studies uh, thanks for joining us again on this episode of Coming Home Network Presents. I'm Matt Swaim, and we will talk to you again soon.